Welcome to the BAPS Better Living Podcast. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. Each episode in this podcast aims to inspire each of us to take a step back from our busy lives and to actively listen to content that can enlighten us towards expanding our consciousness and towards deepening our spirituality. Listen in and let this episode inspire you. Let it encourage you to have fruitful introspections and, most importantly, let it help you be better and do better. Unclaimed Baggage A sea of black, blue, and gray lay before me. Peppered throughout were pops of color, specks of orange, red, and green. I was not at a beach, though, but rather staring wide-eyed at luggage. There were thousands of used bags of different sizes, brands, and features. Carry-ons, two-wheeled and four-wheeled rollers, duffel bags, briefcases, shoulder bags, backpacks, laid out in no less than two dozen even rows. It was 1988, and I lived in Decatur, Alabama, population 49,000, a city whose claim to fame was being home to the nation's only unclaimed baggage store. The name of the store was Unclaimed Baggage, an unoriginal name, but effective as anyone could guess what could be found there, the unclaimed luggage from airlines. I was there with my family because this was the place every Indian family in the greater northeast Alabama and southern Tennessee region visited before those long trips to India. Why? Because it was a bonanza of great deals on inexpensive luggage. In addition to the bags, all the accoutrements and possessions of said unclaimed bags were also available for purchase, at a great price. It was a veritable cornucopia of random stuff, which ran the spectrum from high-end couture cutlery I'm still not sure who packs corning wear on flights, electric razors, all types of clothing including belts, shoes, and ties, books, Kishi Carnival Prize quality plastic knickknacks, and all the other trappings people travel with. Thankfully, the manager had the good sense to dispose of all the used toothbrushes and undergarments. If you were patient, diligent, and had a discerning eye, you could find something extraordinary but it required you to sift through mounds of items lost and forgotten. Things probably not worth the original owner's effort or time to pursue. It was like the island of lost, forgotten, and misfit toys, but instead for baggage. As one can imagine, if the claim to fame of any town is an unclaimed baggage store, a major cosmopolitan center it was not. And this is where I found myself in middle school. I was only one of two students of Asian Indian descent in my eighth grade class. Mr. Edmonds, generally considered the coolest teacher in school because he wore dark sunglasses and drove a Jeep, which would be the contemporary equivalent to the bearded hipster drinking kumbacha in the teacher's lounge, was my homeroom and social studies teacher. For those unaware, Social studies in American education is a collective term for the integrated study of multiple fields of social sciences, including history, political science, and geography. It's typically in this collective that world religion and culture are taught at a primary level. One day, Mr. Edmonds wrote a topic on the overhead projector which filled me with excitement tinged with a bit of dread. The topic? Hinduism. 
I was excited being the only Hindu in class and being able to speak about something that influenced so much of my world and my sense of identity. But why the dread? As many immigrants or minorities in the great American melting pot may have experienced, when a topic specific to you, but foreign to the majority, is presented by someone not of your group, there may be statements, generalizations, and assumptions which differ from your reality and lived experience. We discuss the ancient scriptures, the Vedas, along with basic philosophic concepts such as karma and reincarnation. I nodded along eagerly, and when asked by Mr. Edmonds for additional details, I provided commentary based on my limited understanding and practice. It felt nice being a subject matter expert and providing context and color for my classmates. Unfortunately, this feeling was short-lived because Mr. Edmonds then brought up a topic as alien to me as it was to my classmates. The caste system. He stated that caste was a fundamental part of Hinduism, and it stratified society into different hierarchical classes. These classes created a framework which defined social interaction and restriction. He then looked towards me and asked, What caste are you? I stared at him blankly. He might as well have asked me to translate a phrase in Latin or explain quantum theory. I had no idea. And in that moment, an unreconcilable dichotomy occurred in my mind. I had grown up in a home with the daily Hindu practices of bhakti and prayer every morning before meals and every evening. My family would sit together daily and read scripture, discuss spirituality, and recite mantra. Every weekend, I would attend weekly Hindu balsabas, youth services, in which I would learn Hindu culture, philosophy, and art such as song, dance, language, and music. How was it possible that something as significant as my own caste had never been addressed at home or at the temple? What caste are we? I asked my parents during dinner as I picked at my food. I told them what happened in class and wondered out loud why I had not been taught something so important in Hinduism. My father tried to explain to me how in our philosophy of Hinduism, concepts of caste were irrelevant and that societal, historical, specifically colonial, and political influences outside of spirituality had significantly impacted and corrupted the intricate interpretation of Varna, the term for class in Sanskrit. I was 12 years old and didn't grasp most of what he said, but came away with the general idea that I did not believe in the caste system. That was the what of my belief. It was only years later, after decades of experience, that I developed a deeper understanding of the why. I have come to understand that caste is predicated on the preservation of two things, power and resources. And those with a disproportionate share of either will usually do everything they can to maintain both. The construct of caste in colonial and medieval India was a nuanced issue, evolved over hundreds of years involving the complex interaction of multiple factors, principles, agendas. And it was less inherently religious, but rather social, political, and economic. Furthermore, when casteism is critically viewed through the lens of racism, the parallels in terms of practice as well as purpose are striking. The minute rules of social acceptability, segregation, privilege, 
and opportunity are starkly overlaid. This resonates strongly today considering recent and ongoing widespread social protest over racism and inequality, especially in the summer of 2020. The echoes of slavery in America, the country that is my home and has shaped my worldview, can still be seen and more viscerally felt today. However, I do not know of the single human civilization, ancient or modern, that carries the mantle of originator of the practice of discrimination based on caste, class, race, creed, gender, or orientation. The word caste is of Portuguese derivation, and to ascribe its inception to the faith of Hinduism is simply incorrect and fails to capture the complexity and pervasive nature of the phenomenon. This is the academic and experiential why of my rejection of the caste system as a fundamental part of my Hindu faith. The other foundational piece of my rejection of Mr. Edmund's assertion in question is based on my actual Hindu faith. Bhagwan Swaminarayan was the founder of the Swaminarayan denomination of Hinduism in the early 1800s. In addition to being the spiritual leader of the faith, he was a reformer and a social activist who tirelessly campaigned for the upliftment of all people, regardless of caste, class, or gender. In the Asiatic Journal, 1823, a British official writes that, quote, people of all caste and persuasions resort to Swaminarayan. Hindus of all four classes, Muslims, and even theirs, historically referred to as untouchables, are admitted. The grand principle of the Swaminarayan system seems to be that souls of all mankind are equal, end quote. Bhagwan Swaminarayan's acceptance of all caste is further well described by the Anglican Bishop of Calcutta, Reginald Heber, who wrote in 1828 that, quote, though of different caste, they were disciples of Swaminarayan and taught to regard each other as brethren, end quote. This approach to caste led to wide appeal and was undergirded by his primary spiritual teaching on the Atma, soul, and the quest for Atma realization. Within neoclassical Hinduism, he may even be viewed as a classical liberal, a leader who appreciated diversity and understood how to make it a strength by focusing on the inherent divinity latent in all people and rejecting notions of social hierarchy. During this period in Indian history, this progressive view on caste relations was a relative anomaly and widely denounced in the mainstream. Unfortunately, this denouncement was not simply an intellectual or theological debate. Rather, it resulted in real violence against and even murder of Swaminarayan devotees and ascetics. This required a balance by Bhagwan Swaminarayan between the negative impact of the caste system and the real possibility of violence against his followers by those insistent on maintaining the social order. Nonetheless, he continued the glide path of restorative justice throughout his life and later through the teachings and lives of his spiritual successors. Over the last 200 years, his disciples have continued the fundamental message that the souls of all mankind are equal. Bragi Bhatta was born a Dharji, a member of the Taylor caste, a Varna that is among the lower rungs of the four-level caste ladder and from which traditionally there were not spiritual aspirants revered as spiritual guides and gurus. Regardless of birth status, Bragi Bhatta committed his life to service, spiritual realization, and unflinching devotion and through his endeavors earned the respect and love of countless members of his community at all levels of caste. He became known as Bhagachi Maharaj, and his image is now enshrined in Swaminarayan Mandirs throughout the world as the second spiritual successor of Bhagwan Swaminarayan. His life 
is a resounding rejection of the ossified oppression of the caste system and the personification of Bhagavan Swaminarayan's belief that birthright and caste have no bearing on societal and spiritual ascension. Quote, From the beginning, the Hindu religion has not supported discrimination. Hinduism has seen the world as a family. The discrimination we see was a later pollutant. End quote. These were the words of Pramukh Swami, the fifth spiritual successor of Bhagwan Swami Narayan in 1990 at the BAPS Mandir in Bochas in Gujarat, India, which was hosting the Dalit Mahasamelan, a revolutionary convention for the Harijan caste. Historically, this group was known as the untouchable caste, a subcaste buried under the heel of the orthodox forecast. He went on, quote, The soul has no family or caste. Every soul has within it the presence of Paramatma, God. The distinctions of this world are to be forgotten. This is necessary for the uplift of society and our country, end quote. These were not just talking points for Pramukh Swami, but rather an ethos he manifested in every interaction he had with every person he met. Throughout his life, he traveled tirelessly visiting the villages of tribal people and meeting with them directly in their homes and huts. He built genuine loving connections by speaking with them rather than at, about, or above them. Many youths from these communities were even initiated by him into the sacred monastic fold as swamis of equal standing as swamis from all backgrounds. The ideas of human equity, equality, and dignity are not only the claim of woke contemporaries, or before them Bolsheviks, or before them revolutionaries yearning to be free, but also that of a Hindu spiritual leader born in 1781. Pragmatism and accommodation required Bhagavan Swaminarayan to be thoughtful with how he leaned forward with societal shift. And this journey of restorative justice continues today with my current Guru Mahant Swami. Though not rapid in the eyes of a single impatient generation, when viewed collectively, the journey has been intentional and unrelenting, and the chain it engenders real. Mahant Swami has codified ancient Hindu sentiment for contemporary sensibility with his writing of the modern scripture, Satsang Diksha. He writes, quote, All men and women of all caste are forever entitled to satsang, spiritual communion, brahmvidya, knowledge of God, and moksha, spiritual liberation. Do not attribute notions of superiority and inferiority based on varna, caste. All persons should shun their ego based on their caste and serve one another. No one is superior. No one is inferior by birth. End quote. Mahanswami teaches me not to subordinate fact, reason, and love to tribal narcissistic emotion and to embrace all groups by first focusing on the individual in front of me. Collectively, my education, experiences, and spiritual teachings and guidance explain why Mr. Edmund's question all those years ago hit such a nerve and is still imprinted in my memory. It was a flashbulb event which frames much of my approach to those who knowingly or unknowingly other me. His initial question, though unlikely of ill intent, is emblematic of a greater societal illness. We have a reflexive tendency in many parts of society, including in academics and politics, 
to flatten entire groups and cultures into a few stereotypical, misunderstood, and mislabeled characteristics. Movies, songs, and novels easily fall into genres. Individuals should not. This heuristic shortcut bleaches away nuance and complexity, distilling me from a layered and multicolored amalgam of genetics and experiences into a reductive, unidimensional trope. I refuse to be labeled as a Hindu caricature, deeply steeped in superstition and a believer of the caste system. Of course, this does not mean that amongst Hindus there are not those who support and perpetuate this system. There were Hindus in the days of Bhagwan Swaminarayan who threatened and committed physical harm on his followers because of his progressive views. Unfortunately, that ignorant sentiment continues today in certain pockets. With humility and honesty, I accept this truth and work to prevent continued perpetuation of these destructive and dividing practices. Through my journey, I see the caste system as what it truly is, unclaimed baggage. Hubris, which was appropriately lost and forgotten. A dark linkage to something that should not be the true shape of my world. This belief is grounded and nurtured by a moral commitment to the right of all people to be treated equally, and a spiritual resolve that all people are worthy of love and respect, rooted in the philosophy and teachings of Bhagavan Swaminarayan and the living example of my Guru. We hope you enjoyed this Better Living episode and that it added value to your life. This episode and all content on this channel is created and managed entirely by Swamis and volunteers of BAPS from around the world. Our volunteers are continuously inspired by the sincere, transparent, and selfless lives of Brahmukhsami Maharaj, the former Guru of BAPS, and Mahansami Maharaj, the current Guru of BAPS. Their character, their teachings, and work have inspired millions of people across all backgrounds, faiths, and cultures throughout the world. They have encouraged all, regardless of one's beliefs, to live a mindful, a balanced, and a harmonious life. If you enjoy content that inspires you to be better and do better, and you would like more Better Living content, follow us on Instagram and YouTube by searching for BAPS Better Living. Thank you for choosing to spend your valuable time with us.